Right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for today, and we thank and praise you especially today for preserving your word through Lutheran churches in America. Uh, we thank you that we have the gift of uh, churches where we believe together and worship together and receive your gifts together. We pray that you would continue to preserve this gift among us and help us to learn uh, through history tonight uh, more about how you have acted in, in history for this gift for us and uh, how we can better preserve it today. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, last week we talked um, kind of about Lutheranism from right after Luther up until Lutherans came to America. So it's a couple hundred years in there that we uh, kind of ran through and discussed. And uh, we ended with uh, talking a little bit about like Muhlenberg and, and some of these Lutherans that came over uh, right around the time of the revolution that um, really started to have what we consider truly Lutheran churches in America um, that weren't just kind of random, right? They had There were random Lutherans all over the place in early America, but they did not have the capabilities to have pastors or churches uh, of their own and things like this. That started with Muhlenberg. Um, we'll go ahead and pick up. This is chapter 29 in the book, if you happen to follow along in the book, um, page 234. So we'll pick up here. And there's a typo in the book. It should say um, conservative German Lutheran immigration in the 1830s, not the 1880s. Um, Don't know why it says that, but it does. So they would think by the third edition they would have caught that since it's in a heading. But um, yeah, in a big, bold heading. But anyway, I was like, I I reread it like three times. I was like, no, that's just not right. Like it's it's talking about the 30s. It's got to be the 30s. Anyway, so um, I'll just uh, read this first paragraph here. Back in the German land, there was still no united Germany, but rather a series of independent German kingdoms. Here, pietism and rationalism, talked about that last week, took root and caused many Lutherans to downplay the differences between Lutheran teachings and other Protestant church teachings. This led to the king of Prussia, Frederick Wilhelm III, a Calvinist married to a Lutheran, to declare on the 300th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, that would be 1817, that Calvinists and Lutheran churches in Prussia would be united to form what became known as the Prussian Union. And um, this also, by the way, was, uh, I think we mentioned last week, did happen as well in America. Right? We had what were called union churches in America that were um, that basically churches that there were enough kind of uh, reformed or Calvinist in in a place along with Lutherans, because oftentimes these people kind of came from the same general areas in Europe and would end up in the same places in America. But they couldn't all afford two different churches with two different pastors, so they would join together and have one church that had a Presbyterian service in the morning and a Lutheran service in the afternoon, but the same pastor would do both, and it was a toss-up which one he believed. <laughs> so um, those led to some what were called union churches. But anyway, this happened in uh, Saxony um, and uh, as well. So there were Orthodox Lutherans in other German nations, such as Bavaria and Saxony, 
that were concerned about the, the these this uh, union idea going on. And if you think back, it's analogous also to what happened um, was happening with Melanchthon and, and and that crowd right after Luther and the Reformation, right? He that there was always this there's always been this tension as to whether or not the Reformed and the Lutherans can get along. And um, You're fine. I have the sound off. I was trying to come up with some joke about how that had to do with Calvinism, but I it, I couldn't get there. I didn't even know there's my arm going off. I was gonna say that that's like that was like if you're in a Lutheran church and the Calvinist just keeps on. You know, like, no, we don't get along. Uh, oh my gosh. There's always been this tension as to whether or not the Reformed and Lutherans can get along, and the Orthodox Lutherans have always said. No, we don't understand Christology the same way. We don't understand the Lord's Supper the same way, right? Um, but there's always been some people say, oh, we're close enough, right? So this is always kind of a struggle. Um, so anyway, here we are in Saxony. They're concerned about the Prussian Union. And also there's these opportunities in the new land, right, in, in America. And so... This is what leads to the Missouri Saxons, as the book says. And this title is correct, the Missouri Saxons. So in 1838, in November 1838, a group of Saxons set sails for America under the leadership of a guy named Martin Stephan. Martin Stephan. And uh, on the ship over, they vote Martin Stephan to be bishop of their group so it's basically a church group and they're leaving more or less under persecution right they um there's there is roman catholic persecution around saxony as well and then there's this calvinist union stuff going on um and they're like we're we're out of here right so a big group over 500 um of saxons set sail for america in 1838 and uh when they get over here so they land, uh, and their plan is to go to Missouri, right? And you can see where this is going. Germans that are Lutheran coming to Missouri, right? What, what do we have today? The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, right? You can see where this is going. Uh, so they get to St. Louis in early, around St. Louis in early 1839. Um, and they decided not to settle there. Right by Stephan, and they move uh, down the river a little bit to Perry County, Missouri. Now, when they get there, a few women from the group confess in uh, that are still in St. Louis confess to having illicit relationships with Martin Stephan. Shortly thereafter, the group deposed of Stephan for sexual and fiscal misconduct and false doctrine. Now, what the book doesn't tell you is that this is still debated to this day as to whether or not this actually happened, right? Not, not that the women claimed that. It's obviously obvious that the women claimed that. I think we have historical records of that. Um, but there are some of uh, Stefan's family that was on the ship that is still in the Synod today, actually, descendants. And they have, and Stefan himself, always claimed to be not guilty. And that that there, there was a group of these Saxons that always um, also that historically and throughout 
the the stories passed down through the generations claimed that he was not guilty. So um, obviously, I think at this point we have no way of knowing, right? Uh, I mean, it has been known in history to happen that uh, women will claim to have had relationships with men in power and be lying. I mean, that has happened before in history, right? So um, that's a possibility. Uh, however, by and large, it seems that people believe that. And, and the, the other thing about Stefan is he seems to have just been a weird guy, but he was also very personal. I mean, this is like, it's, it's very interesting just because a lot of people in powerful positions are like this, right? They're weird people but yet they're able to attract a lot of people to believe them, right, and to, and to lead them. So anyway, um, I bring it up partly just because I think that we should not be so proud. Uh, uh, I think with Reformation Day, um, I was kind of thinking about this, that um, Lutherans get really uh, riled up about the Reformation Day, right? Like, and, and that's fine. It's good, right? We, you know, people wear red and, and we stand up to sing a mighty fortress and we – you know, we have all the big festivities and the Oktoberfest and everything. Um, but part of the theology of the Reformation is that we're all poor, miserable sinners, right? Mm-hmm. And we should always keep that in mind, too. That our history is not one of, like, absolute purity. And it's also not like um, things couldn't go horribly wrong at, at some point as, as well. And things almost did go horribly wrong here. Like the the and and we'll see here in a minute um, that things after this whole Stefan incident uh, kind of fell apart for uh, a couple years until Walther was able to pick up the pieces. And it's important to realize that when we think about our our synod and our church, like we can't just say, "Oh man, we're so good." Luther gave it to those Roman Catholics 500 years ago, like so glad that that happened now i don't have to worry about anything ever again in my life like who cares about what luther did 500 years ago in a sense right i mean it does matter but what matters is that we hold on to it now right and and that um when we think about maintaining a church body and especially a individual church in our case here in america uh that we're very clear about what our standards are for leaders, for one, right? And what uh, is important, right? And anyway, um, I, I kind of like that the LCMS had to go through this in one sense, not because it was a good situation, it was a very bad situation, but at least it kind of keeps us humble, right? That we're not like some magical church body dropped down out of heaven and that you know nothing could ever go wrong or that we couldn't ever have any problems. Right. Um, in fact, we had such a big problem right at the beginning, we almost didn't make it. Yeah, go ahead. I always heard Martin Stephan was uh, from that, what's the word? Charismatic. Yeah, charismatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was. That's why women could possibly envision more than. Yeah, he was a, he was a charismatic leader. That's what I kind of saying. Like, he was an odd guy. But he was charismatic. He was able to attract a lot of people to, to follow him. And, yeah, it's uh, it's up in the air to me from what I've heard, um, various stories as to whether or not this ever 
happened or what exactly happened. I imagine it's one of those things where it's probably somewhere in the middle of what both sides claim to say, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Um, especially with stories like these. So anyhow, uh, but that it that's that's the story, right? That's what's published in the history books. And um, so that's what's uh, taught in Lutheranism 101, apparently. All right. Seems to go past 101 a bit, but that's that's kind of the point of the class. We've been doing this for two years, two and a half years or something. So, all right, for uh, over a year and a half, the Missouri Saxons in Perry County suffered doubt about their emigration and debated the question of whether they were even a church. During this time, they faced hunger, sickness, and death. Ultimately, at a debate in Altenburg, Missouri, in April 1841, C.F.W. Walther emerged as the new theological leader among among the Missouri Saxon pastors and congregations. Under Walther's leadership, the group began to reach out to other Lutherans in America. These efforts led to the creation of the De Deutsche Evangelisch Lutherische Synod von Missouri, Ohio, und Adlern Staten, the German Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states. That's what the LCMS used to be called. Yeah. You know, I feel like you know, if I was Ohio, I'd be really mad. Because it became the LCMS, and it used to be the LCMOS, right? And they just, like, dropped Ohio. They were like, nah, it's, it's just Ohio. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, CFW Walther. Okay, so that's Martin Stephan. He's out of the picture, right? CFW Walther is very important, and the book doesn't really give him due credit here. But uh, C.F.W. Walther was the first president of the LCMS, right, when they created the Synod. And he was not only the first president, he also, as we already said, kind of picked up the pieces. Uh, This is, by the way, Carl Ferdinand Wilhelm Walther, in case anyone's Mm -hmm. interested. He kind of picked up the pieces of a very messy situation. Um, And he was also, on top of being the first president and picking up the pieces of a very messy situation, was the first president of the St. Louis Seminary, right? So he established the first uh, seminary. And very contrary to how we run things today with a huge, what's called the International Center in St. Louis, with lots of Senate boards and lots of... um, offices and staff and um, administrators and CFOs and CEOs and all sorts of things uh, that we have today in our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, CFW Walther had synod conventions and meetings of the faculty of this uh, seminary and district president meetings in his house. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is not just to say that things were smaller, um, but that things were much simpler. And they they really weren't small in in one sense, right? There was lots of work to be done in American Lutheranism at this time, and really more work than they had probably the people to do it. Um, it was it was hard to keep up. I mean, yes, this group of 500 Saxons came over and they started to, you know, have children that were growing up and and, and whatnot. 
But there were also all these other Lutherans already in America. And there was uh, churches to be planted, churches that needed people that needed ministering to, tons of work to be done. And Walther had this way about him uh, that he was able to kind of cut through things, cut through, let's say, bureaucratic red tape, right? Um, he didn't get caught up, one, in like the being kind of a charismatic leader like Stefan did. If you ever see a picture of Walther, he wasn't um, – someone that was as charismatic as Walter was. He was kind of an ugly guy, right? And you actually had to listen to him to kind of respect him. Um, but he was able to efficiently get things done by focusing on what was important, and that was the gospel, right? And so he wrote a couple books that uh, are pretty important. Uh, he, he really was this the synod's, uh, primary theologian, and what he really helped do was answer this question, how do we be Lutherans in America, right? And Because America functions very different than, a, than how they had in Germany, right? In Germany, what was the situation? It was a state church, mm -hmm. right? How do we be Lutherans in kind of more of a free church type of setting? And uh, so the one book he wrote that's very important to our synod's history um, that is where we get kind of the way that we function as a church today, really, in a lot of ways, is a book called, um, well, in, in German it was called Kirchenamt, but it's uh, Church and Ministry. And uh, this was very important in, in, like I said, kind of cutting through the bureaucratic red tape. And he goes to the Bible. He, he Each section, he has kind of a thesis of what the church and ministry is. And he goes to the Bible, and then he goes to uh, the early church fathers and the Lutheran church fathers and gives kind of evidence for everything that he says, right? And um, that, so that, this is a pretty important book in helping um, really define the LCMS as an American Lutheran church. Uh, he also writes a whole host of other number of things. Um, he writes uh, – he, he's also very engaged, again, in what's important. So he writes books, for instance, against communism uh, because there are threats of, of communism uh, at the time and uh, worldwide and, and also in America. And he deals with some of these social issues, right? Um, so that's another important point is that he, he writes – some important uh, and, and deals with some important things where he's not – again, he's not worried about like, um, I don't know, building a big finance division of the Senate or something like that at the time or a planned giving division of the Senate or something like that. He's worried about what matters in keeping the church body alive and in, and in spreading the gospel right, and defending it from air. The, the other thing that he doesn't write but that is kind of important – that has come up in our discussions of Lutheranism before is Law and Gospel. And this is actually a collection of notes um, by students of his where he was talking to them at a fireside chat at the, at the seminary. Um, he would have weekly just have some students uh, over at the seminary. They'd, they'd sit by a fire and they'd talk theology. And his uh, students uh, wrote, wrote down, kind of uh, collected together these um, theses that he argued about 
law and gospel in the Bible. And, and so really what that is, and you can see it just by the nature of what it was, was a, a book about pastoral theology. And so all, most pastors have to read this in seminary. And um, the question there is, how does God's word apply to the hearer of God's word? Right? How does, how does God's word apply to, to the hearer of God's word? And the answer is, um, it makes demands on the person, that's the law, and it makes promises to the person about Christ and for salvation, and that's the gospel. Right? Um, there, we did talk back when we talked about preaching that um, this is never what Walther really wanted to be, a preaching textbook. Um, Walther did write about preaching in uh, – he, he also has another book literally called Pastoral Theology where he writes about preaching – um, and he does not use the paradigm of law and gospel in that. So um, that's kind of a modern mistake. Some Lutherans have taken that book, law and gospel, and tried to use it uh, to make sermons, which doesn't really work. Anyway, that's a weird thing, but um, just so you're aware. All right, so that's Walther. Um, anyway, he, he was very important. I think there's a movie that was made about Walther, but it's like really long and boring is what I've heard. I've not seen it. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think there was some discussion about the um, like Stephen was a bishop, and then they came here, and they, he was kind of in the background. And then there was discussion: well, you had to have a line of succession, so only a, a theologian that was a bishop before could uh, ordinate another bishop. I don't know if Walter was called a bishop, but he had input into that where he said, "No, we're we're starting over fresh." Yeah, that there a, a number of Lutherans have um, held to what's called apostolic succession, yeah. and there's two different ways to understand apostolic succession. So, apostolic succession, the idea is that there's a succession of pastors going back to the apostles. Now, there's kind of, there, it's, it's not even so much two ways, it's more kind of a linear um, approach to understand this, right? One, one side that some people argue for, though not many, would say that we need to be able to basically do like a, I don't know, let's say like a genealogy of, um, pastors where we can just literally draw a line like this pastor was ordained by this pastor was ordained by this pastor was ordained by this pastor that goes straight back to the apostles now not even this this is basically impossible because um the the early church talked about apostolic succession but they talked about it um more in broader churches like a pastor from the ephesian church like this guy was basically ordained out of the ephesian church and then that was passed down through him or something like that. So that that's really kind of defunct. No one, not even like the Roman Catholics or the um, the Episcopalians who are big on this, uh, really believe that understanding of it uh, today. That we need to go back to individuals, right? And for the Roman Catholics, it was that always about getting back to Peter in some in some way, right? On the whole other end of things. Um, Someone might say that, like, 
you don't need apostolic succession that anyone can be a pastor if they feel called, right? And basically can be uh, either voted into or um, by their by their collection of people that they call their church into being a pastor, or that um, you know they can just start calling themselves a pastor and they can be a pastor, right? Um, that there would be no basically no succession, right? And Lutherans have never really argued for that either. Because the the Bible does talk about this about ordination, right? The laying on of hands, and Paul does tell Timothy that he should fan into flame the gift that was given him by the laying on of hands, right? And we've talked about before, like in the liturgy, when we say "and with thy spirit," that's recalling that special spirit that's given. To a pastor at their ordination, right? So we do consider ordination a um, divine ordinance, right? It's not just a human right, but it is this divine ordinance. It's not a sacrament um, in the way that we define sacrament, but it is a divine ordinance. And the laying on of hands is important. And we also say that it's important that pastors make other pastors, right? That that a guy's not just kind of coming out of nowhere, right? Um, but that pastors make other pastors and um, that pastors train up other pastors, right? That's why we've instituted seminaries so that pastors train up other pastors and and not just, you know, someone studying in their Bible in their basement for 20 years and coming up out of the, the ba- basement and saying, oh, I'm a pastor now, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. So um, there's kind of a linear scale here. And, and basically what happened, so um, Stefan was more on this side of things where it was like, you know, we should be able to trace it, and um, it's you're not a real bishop if you don't have one. Um, Walter was a little more in the middle, right? And what Walter focused on was that the purpose of this whole thing, right, is to preserve what? The doctrine, right? That's the purpose of, of apostolic succession, is that the doctrine of the faith is preserved, right? That... Um, like, like Paul tells Titus and Timothy to hold fast to the doctrine that they've been given, right? And so we should have ordination, and we should have a succession of sorts. Um, but it, it doesn't need to be this genealogical approach, and it, what it really needs to be is that the church at large um, recognizes that this guy was trained by pastors and that this guy— was is legitimate right um that there's not just kind of people coming up out of nowhere and walter deals with this by the way in church and ministry now what walter also argues in church and ministry is and i i think this is correct is that people have a right to the gospel right so when um Luther, in the small catechism, when he writes about the office of the keys, what does he say? He says, the office of the keys is that special gift which Christ has given to his church on earth. Why is the office of the keys, which, I mean, in a way doesn't really necessarily uh, make sense with with the proof text, right? Because when Jesus gives the office of the keys, who does he give the office of the keys to? In one sense, he gives it directly to the pastors, right? He gives... And Matthew 16, he gives the, the keys to the apostles on the 
on the mountain, right? And then in John 20, it's the apostles in the in the room, right? In the locked room. And um, but why did Lutheran say that he gives the office of the keys to the church? Well, because ultimately it is for the church, right? Whose sins are the apostles forgiving in the uh, in the office of the keys? The people's, right? It's and so the gift is for the church, and everyone has a right to the gospel. Everyone has a right to have their sins forgiven by a pastor. Everyone has a right um, to have uh, the sacrament administered to them by a pastor, right? This is Christians have a right to these things by for, by sake of being Christian. So Walther said, if there is an emergency situation where you know basically basically this is this is uh, um, putting words into Walther's mouth. He did not say this, but because uh, there was there wasn't really planes around when he said this. Basically, you know, there's a plane crash. There's a group of Christians on an island that are stranded. They don't have, you know, any anyone anywhere, right? They can call a pastor among themselves, right? They can pick a quali- the, the most qualified man in the group of people, right? According to 1 Timothy 3, and and they can ordain him, right? And this, I think this is probably what you're talking about, Steve. So Walther argues this, and um, I'd have to, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't actually know how Walther was ordained. Um, but in one sense, I, I, I don't. I'm not, I have to go look that up. I just don't remember. I know I learned it at some point, but I don't remember. Um, I want to say he was ordained by other pastors. That they got some from Germany or they found some in America or whatever. I don't. I don't remember. Do you know, Eric? I think he was ordained in Saxony before they came over. He was going to the seminary. Okay. Yeah. He was already a pastor of sorts. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, anyway. But he's pretty clear about th- those kind of situations. That they must be like truly emergencies, right? And I would argue today, unless in case of like the stranded, you know, Gilligan's Island situation, whatever. Um, except in a case like that, which I guess we wouldn't really even know about per se. Uh, there are, with modern technology, emergency situations are super rare. Like, I mean. Back when people had to travel on horseback to everywhere, it was more likely that maybe you'd have some sort of emergency situation where a pastor couldn't get to a group of people. But um, it's pretty easy now. Even people are far flung. Like, like in theory, let's like say, okay, um, all the pastors in, in Memphis and North Mississippi have died except for me, and um, there's not enough to go around America. Like. I don't know, there's a plague or something, and it knocks out all the LCMS pastors except for me. Um, I could probably make it to, with with my car, I couldn't make it to every single church on, on Sunday. But I could get to every single church in Memphis and North Mississippi in a month, mm-hmm. you know, and give people communion and, and do services and stuff. like. And that's a pretty big area, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so... Um, it's pretty hard to come up with like a real like emergency situation today where people would need to uh, raise raise a pastor from among themselves. But and and in one sense, we I mean we still do this, but um, not when it, it's well. I won't, I won't go there. Never mind. What about if yeah? Go ahead. If, what about war? 
Uh, give me the, the battlefield. Like in the battlefield? Yeah. So again, um, I mean, every Christian has the right to the gospel. Now, um, we would say it, it kind of depends on what you're talking about. So like, if it's if you're talking about baptism, um, any Christian can baptize in the case of a, an emergency, because baptism is uh, salvific. We would say that. Um, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, there's not an emergency reason for the Lord's Supper. Like, and there have been groups of Christians who have gone, you know, even 10, 20, 30 years without the Lord's Supper um, because they haven't had a pastor. Uh, and in those cases, you could say, well, maybe they should have raised up a pastor among themselves. But um, especially in case of when you're talking in, you know, less than a year, less than five years, probably easily um, in a battlefield situation uh it's not going to be that necessary that um they need to start like celebrating the lord's supper on their own right so for instance i'll just give you a perfect real life example is uh sam who um he might be back this sunday uh he's in texas by the way so um he's not in egypt anymore but um sam uh for Hey, the he's a, our, a member here. He's in he was in Egypt tall, this last year. Yeah, yeah tall. Yeah. Real tall. Uh, so, um, you know, we've talked on the phone throughout his time over there, and uh, his two options for church was the Protestant service on Sundays and the Catholic service on Sundays. And the Catholic uh, service on Sundays is in Spanish, and the Protestant service was led by a woman. So he was like, where do I go? And I was like, um, go to the Catholic one and read your Bible, I guess, um, or whatever. But he was like, should I take communion at either of them? And I was like, no. Like, and, he was, and, and I was like, I'll see if I can get you an LCMS chaplain, which wasn't possible. And, and basically I told him, like, yeah, this is – you're suffering for the gospel, but you'll get communion when you get back, you know. And that's just, that's just the nature of it sometimes, so. Um, yeah, so it kind of depends on what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, even with like, with like preaching today, I mean, it's not ideal. Like I think preaching is better in person, but like, you know, Sam could still listen to my sermons, you know, when he was over there. Um, and that's what I was saying with technology today. Like it's, it's pretty difficult to, um, have like these like super emergency situations where someone would need to just like kind of become a pastor out of nowhere. So, anyhow. Mm. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's Walter and, and Stefan. And yeah, that, that was a bit of a side note there, but that's all right. All right. Um, confessional revival. During the same period, many of the Lutherans from the General Synod, which we talked about last time, in America, had been in America for a couple generations, uh, were reconsidering their connection to their confessional roots. There was a renewal of confessional interests, but in a couple of directions. On one extreme was Samuel Simon Schmucker, who in 1855, you just know he's kind of a... He made jam. Yeah, he didn't make jam. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like a, he's going to be trouble with a name like Schmucker. Yeah. Schmuck. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They probably still made their own jelly in 1855. So. They probably grew their own grapes. 
Um, put forth the idea of rewriting the Augsburg Confession to make it more palatable for those Americans who were closely tied to the Puritan tradition. Others responded against this and argued that the Lutheran confessions were an important portion of their theological heritage. On the opposite extreme of Schmucker was Walther, who argued that the Lutheran confessions are a right exposition of the Bible and uh, should be held to because of this. So this is another thing about Walther, by the way, is that he was a, uh, a staunch confessor, right? He was he was persecuted for holding the line, right? Um, people were like, oh, you just got to be better with the Puritans. Uh, you got to be more friendly with uh, this group or that group, right? Uh, and and he just, he wouldn't do it, right? And he was like, we're Lutheran. We're going to hold to the Lutheran confessions, right? Um, another name they don't mention here too, um, somewhere around this time, that was kind of a response to Schmucker that's uh, maybe worth noting is uh, Charles Krauth, Charles Porter Krauth. And uh, the reason I bring him up is because he wrote a book kind of in response to Schmucker called, and this has been the theme of this class really uh, in some ways over the last couple years, is he wrote a book that, I, that I've used many times called The Conservative Reformation. And you've probably heard me use that phrase before. This is where it comes from. There's uh, no such thing as copyright in the Christian church because all truth is God's truth. Uh, so um, when I just totally rip off uh, Krauth's book title, um, whenever I teach um, without giving him credit, you can't sue me um, because <laughs> this is the Christian church and there's no such thing as copyright. I don't know if you know that. Um, yeah, we don't uh, we don't copyright good theology. We we let good theology flow freely. Yes. But we have to copyright music. Yeah, that's what CPH thinks, but oh, okay. I disagree. Okay. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So this is a direct attack against CPH, <laughs> and um, the, this is going on the internet, so they can hear this, but. Um, the catechism should not be copyrighted. So, okay. Uh, anyway, the Conservative Reformation is a good book, and basically what he argues there is that the uh, and this this comes up over and over again throughout history is that uh, we're Protestants, we're reformers, we're revolutionaries. We need to overthrow um, all the old bad. Uh, you know the Catholics, and and we need to overthrow uh, all the all the old traditions. And Krauth uh, makes the argument that when Luther and that we already talked about this extensively, when Luther and the Evangelicals reform, it's a conservative reformation. It does not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not about revolution. It's not about overthrow, right? And this is true still today, right? When Schmucker says. Um, we need to. We just need to get rid of those old books and write some new, more up-to-date ones. Uh, he. This is what he kind of responds to and says, "No, the Lutheran theology is a theology that um, holds on to the past. It ties itself to the past, time. right? And it transcends time. We're not just gonna. Uh, the the refer, a Reformation is always about if you're going down a if you're going down the track of history, right? and someone veers off in a direction they shouldn't go, the Reformation gets them back on track, right? The Reformation is not about 
you know, saying, oh yeah, let's go over here, right? The Reformation is about staying on the on the track of, of the gospel. And um, so... Which a lot of churches have gotten off the track a lot. That's true, <laughs> right? So this idea of the conservative Reformation, where on one hand it is a Reformation, right? On one hand we are changing something, right? We're, we're changing what was bad, but on the other hand it's conservative. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, Right, we're um, we're keeping the good things of the past, and so uh, this is, I think, an important concept. And um, anyway, that book was written around this time, so uh, Schmucker made me think of that. All right. Um, as the 19th century drew to a close, the Lutheran churches in America experienced a time of incredible growth. A large number of immigrants from Germany poured into America and were in need of churches. In particular, Lutheran, Lutheran bodies that formed by recent immigrants grew quickly at this time as they spoke the same language of these new arrivals and, and, and shared uh, closer ties with their culture. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit about this next part here too, and then I'm going to summarize some of this. The 20th century carried its share of upheaval, upheavals, uh, struggles, and changes this is also true of American Lutheranism in the last century. Okay, actually, I'm not going to read this yet because um, I think this gets too far into the 20th century. So the time of greatest growth um, in the Missouri Synod, and it just briefly mentions it here, was really between uh, the end of the Civil War and the beginning of World War One. And it's, it's kind of funny because this is the – it's the period of greatest growth in the Missouri Synod – and yet it's talked about the least, right? We get this one little paragraph here um, in the book, and uh, when it, you know, it's like whenever you read anything about American Lutheran history, it's like Walther and then World War II, <laughs> and um, there's like, you know, a solid like hundred, almost a hundred years in there, right? Maybe you know, seventy-five years in there, or so uh, that are because right, we got you know the 1860s to the to the 19. Um, Early 1912. Yeah, 1912. So it's like, uh, yeah, a good 50. I say 50 years. Yeah, 50 years. I say, um, 50 years, and there, and the Missouri Synod explodes, right? And the thing to note about this is that it says there's a bunch of German immigration. Okay, it's not as if the um, Germans that immigrated, all the Germans that immigrated here, were already just like perfect Lutherans out of the womb. Right, a lot of the people that immigrated here, a lot of them, especially in the uh, later half of the 19th century, were not Christian. They were German, but they weren't Christian. Right, especially as westward expansion was happening in America. Um, you might remember this from American history. Like a lot of the people in the you know Wild West, right, quote unquote, they were not. This was not like a Christian uh, big. Uh, Christian boom at this time, right? Yes, Steve, go ahead. It might be because of the state church in Germany. They thought they were Christians. Yeah, I mean, some of them did belong to state churches, but, like, if they came over here for, like, say, the gold rush or something, they're not just, like, going, just automatically going to church every Sunday. Right. Right, (laughs) when they don't have to anymore. Um, They think they were Christian because they were in a country that was the state church. Yeah, and, and they might have some semblance of that, but um, 
my point is to say that there was evangelism that actually needed to happen here, right? And this is one of Walter's uh, things that he's doing, uh, that his crowd's doing, and then the seminary and the people that came after him, um, they're evangelizing. They're, they're going out and finding – they're going and finding German communities, and they're actually uh, having to evangelize and talk to these people and tell them about Jesus, right? And they're doing it in German, Right, which I, I think this is why we don't know a lot about it. Um, I have some friends who have studied this who know German, but they, uh, there's a lot of uh, real evangelism that's happening during this time, and we just kind of ignore it, right? But it's, it's actually a time when the church is is growing um, at its most. That this is, if you go and find most Missouri Synod churches, um, if you go to a, a place and then find like the mother church of that area, there's a pretty good chance it was. Planted during this time. Uh, does anyone know when Trinity? 1855. Trinity was planted in 1855. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right about there, right? Um, I know that because we were just there and there was a big. City. Yeah, right. So, and that's a big city. So, uh, I mean, it's a little in some uh, of the smaller um, cities, especially uh, they're planted. Like I, my home church, which is the mother church of um, one of the mother churches of Central Arkansas, it, it was planted in the. I think it was like the 1870s or 1880s. Yeah, so very, very common. Uh, do you know, first Lutheran was planted by a guy that Walther sent, right? Yeah, in fact, um, Walther took him out of seminary early and ordained him like a couple of days before he died, before Walther died. Oh. So it was like 1878. The guy that this the guy that planted first Lutheran in Chattanooga. Oh. Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, Pastor Wilmer just had a thing on his Facebook about that guy. That was a very interesting story. Um, so anyway, yeah, this is a, this is the time of the greatest growth and, um, yeah, there were Lutherans in, you know, Tennessee and, and whatnot, but, or there, there were Germans in Tennessee, but they weren't necessarily like just de facto Lutheran. They had to be told, um, and, and convinced and evangelized that, uh, they should come to church. Right. So, um, I think we can learn a lot from that era. Um, but unfortunately some of us kind of walked away in Germany. So that's that. All right. Uh, that brings us to the 20th century. Um, so in the – let's see. Where were we at here? Um, okay, it just goes on to talk about how there were – immigrations from other areas that were Lutheran as well. There were some Russian Lutherans, Scandinavian Lutherans um, that were coming over as well in the in the 19th century and some of the early 20th century as well. Uh, but, um, and they make the point that not all um, – that this was complicated. This is true. This is complicated because there are – historic differences between some of these groups that come over as well, right? So the Scandinavian Lutherans come more out of pietism, right? And the German Lutherans come more out of the orthodoxy strain, if you remember that distinction we drew last time. So there's uh, some of those differences there. Okay. Um, Let's jump down to where it says Americanization and the use of English. At the start of the 20th century, a full 80% of Lutherans in America – were speaking one of 30 different non-English native languages. For some of the churches, this came not only from immigrants, but also 
uh, from the education of the next generation. So interestingly, when the, the, if you go and read the Missouri Senate's first constitution, one of the things it demands is that every time they plant a church, they also have to start a school. Um, and this was basically their way of ensuring that not only the faith, but also in some, to some degree the culture and the language – and uh, that their patronage would be passed on, right? That we're going to edge – and this, this was a, um, a very cognizant decision of the Lutherans at this time that when we plant churches, we're also going to plant schools because we're going to raise our children to be our children, right? We're not going to um, kind of give them up to someone else uh, to raise them for us, right? And Because if we want to maintain the faith, right, and – and you can think about it, right? They're, they were reading their Bibles in German. They were worshiping in German, right? If we want to maintain our worship and our Bible reading and our, and our faith and our culture and our people, we have to train up our own children, right? We have to, we have to teach them. And I think um, we can learn from that as well that um, – and you know, maybe we don't need to start a school. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways the, the future of Christian education – just statistically speaking, right now in America, in the American landscape, seems to be homeschooling. That seems to be what most um, can. I mean, I'm speaking somewhat from experience here, but that seems to be what um, a lot of conservative Lutherans are turning to, right? Um, because there's not a ton of Lutheran schools available uh, in a lot of places, and they're. Um, it's just it seems to be a simpler approach, right? Because for a lot of people, I mean, even if there is a Lutheran school valuable, there's financial considerations and um, yeah. When they opened the schools, were they teaching them in the English or in the, the in German? Okay. So they were yeah, to- yeah. At this time, totally in German. Yep. Yeah, that was part of the preservation of of the of the faith. Was like this is what our books are in. This is what our Bibles are in. This is what our worship is in. Right. And so um, we're going to educate them in this way. Um, so it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. Um, as I just said, the Missouri Senate led the way as it had many German schools that preserved its language and children and grandchildren. Um, and it was also a matter of evangelizing too, right? That if, if Germans came over and they weren't Christian or they weren't Lutheran, they had a German school they could go to, right? Um so, interesting, right? So, rather than becoming mainstream Americans, uh, they the Lutherans had simply transplanted their home culture to their new life in America. And uh, there, there's pros and cons to that, right? And I think it's, it's good to consider both. The pros are that they're preserving the faith, right? And they're preserving the, the culture that allows them to have this faith at this time. Uh the the con is that it does make it harder to evangelize to new to new people, right? So, but um, at this time it wasn't it really wasn't all that uncommon at this time that you would have a lot of various enclaves that were speaking different languages, right? I mean, if you the um, I would bet that if 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 you do genealogy. Uh, a lot of us would find that we have a, a whole host of people that came over here 
in in our genealogies in the latter half of the 19th century. That's a lot of Americans. A lot of people came here in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, there are a good number of people that were here before that, right? But um, immigration, this is a time of immigration explosion, as in the, uh, especially European immigration explosion is in the latter half of the 19th century. And there, it was not uncommon at this time to have a bunch of different enclaves that spoke different languages, right? The mass use of English um, really begins in the 20th century, again, with some of these world wars uh, bringing people together, and um, we'll see how that affects German, uh, the speaking of German specifically, but bringing people together and then, and then the rise of government schools and uh, the rise of public schooling in the 20th century really uh, changed a lot of things here. So... All right. Um, here we are. Okay. However, the first decade of the 20th century also saw the start of great change in the form of a new movement toward the use of English in many American Lutheran church bodies. And this was true not just in Lutheran churches, by the way. This was true in um, other non-English speaking church bodies as well. Even in the Missouri Synod, which was so heavily invested in German heritage, voted in 1911 to allow the English Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri and other states to join the Missouri Synod as a non-geographical English language district. That's where we get the English district today um, in, our, in our synod. As Lutherans are typically reluctant to change, it should be noted that the transition to English for these immigrant churches tended to be slow as late as the 1930s. Lutherans in America were still printing uh, periodicals for members not only in German but also in Slovak, Danish, Norwegian, and Finnish. The main factor that eventually forced the dropping of the German language is World War I. Suddenly, it became very unpopular to sound too German, right? And I also noted last week, by the way, that uh, that's where the flags in the sanctuary come from, is that the, they, they wanted to show themselves to be Americans, right? And there would literally be, like, federal agents that would show up to churches that were known to speak German and, and be like, are you guys really American? Are you get, you're not German spies, are you? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's where the. Uh, but traditionally, I mean, if you just think about it, it's really weird to have a national flag in a Christian sanctuary, because in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, right? Yeah. Why would we have a national flag in the sanctuary? It just doesn't really make any sense. Like, um, in in the New Testament, it's like an abomination that the Roman eagle is in the in the temple, right? This is like a problem. So, um, and I always, it's kind of funny that we have a little eagle on the top of the American flag, right? Because yeah. it's like the Roman eagle. Anyway, um, okay, anyway. It's not, and it's not, and it's not an anti-patriotic sentiment um, by any means. Um, I consider myself to be a proud American, but uh, it's just like weird. And I, th- I have talked to the elders about moving the uh, flags out of the, sanctuary um and the maybe i shouldn't disclose this but uh the elders said they didn't think anyone would really care so straw poll does anyone care if we move the flags jack does jack cares um not like gone just like in in the narthex in the narthex yeah i could probably go for that there you go boom um but anyway uh that's a discussion for another time um <laughs> uh, 
I just I figured I'd just throw it at you when we have one minute left to see what would happen. World War Yeah. Uh, so talk to talk to Pastor. This is what you do. Talk to Pastor Vanderbush because he's the one who's encouraging me to to do this. And he is a former Marine and a former yeah. armor chap, yeah. Army chaplain. Yeah. And he despises that they're in there. We could put him to the back. If you make him, if you put him out here, you have to make him shorter and the flags are Yeah, that's the thing. Down. I did test it one day to see, and they're, they're, too, yeah. uh, they're too tall to put right here. You just put him in the back by the sound system. Then yeah, that's true. Behind everybody. That's true. Sound system. still be in there, but it'd be yeah. fine. Good deal. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the idea is that um, in uh, Christian sanctuary, the... Um, there should be because the this is like Pastor Vanderbush's big point is that according to the flag code of the United States, the flag has to be higher than anything else in the space that it's in because it's the thing that's most honorable. And in a Christian sanctuary, the thing that's most honorable is the altar, yeah. right? Not the flag. So um, anyway, that's the that's the thing. So. Um, all right. Well, we'll stop there. Um, that's this time. So that's when we stopped using English was World War, or stopped using German was World War One. Um, all right. Yeah, ne- next time, what I want to really talk about next time is the book doesn't go into this stuff, which is really too bad, but over and over again throughout um, this class, we've seen that what are the decades that the things changed the most for modern Lutherans in the 20th century? The 60s and 70s. It's an ongoing joke, right? It's like, well, when did this change? Oh, yeah, it was the 60s and 70s, right? Um, so I want to talk about the 60s. I was really busy during the 60s and 70s. I was really busy. Yeah, I want to talk about the 60s and 70s a little bit, and not really the 60s and 70s, but the whole 20th century. Um, starting really like with the Roaring Twenties, um, and maybe even the late, so yeah, even like the late nineteenth uh, century with um, the Industrial Revolution as well, um, because I think the Industrial Revolution and the techno- technological revolution, um, as as well as uh, movements like feminism and, and other movements, the sexual revolution, basically those three revolutions, right? The tech- Industrial Revolution, Technological Revolution, and the Sexual Revolution really changed a lot about the church and the way it relates to culture. Mm-hmm. And um, the point of this chapter is that we talk about the history of the Lutheran church mm-hmm. and how it's been affected in the world and America throughout history. So the book doesn't go into that, but I, I think I want to talk about that next week. So anyway. In the 60s, baby, uh, I think we get uh, the shortcut on everything. It's always the 60s. It, I mean, even... When I have family, I think, well, this happened in the 60s, you know, in the 60s. Well, there was so much change. It was, yeah. You know, and, um, so we get a bad rap, the 60s. Well, it's nothing against being born in the 60s, right? Because yeah, you weren't in charge of anything. We were living in the 60s. Yeah. We were teenagers. Okay. Well, even the teenagers, you know, you, 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 weren't, you weren't in charge of things. No. It was... That uh, was the group before us. Yeah, right. It was your guys' oh, your, your parents, you know. <laughs> I don't know your parents, but. <laughs> yeah, Gary. I noticed when you were talking there, Jim, and where in Oxford, you 
the people you were talking to were asking a lot of questions because they've grown up in a completely different era than what we did. I mean, I can remember back when my mother went to work, that was a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I mean, you know, she, she didn't, but, but you know, with the way things are today, you almost have to have two, two salaries in order to make it. Yeah, right. Are you, yeah, did you listen to the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I was just talking about um, the table of duties and husbands and wives in, in, uh, at the class in Oxford. And they were um, asking questions about well, things that like stuff. So yeah. much like more people going, and more women going into doc, being doctors than there ever was back then. Right. You know, and so they're going to make a pretty good salary. You know, all those people are. Yeah. So, you know, that's you know, like you you mentioned something about that the the woman should the man should make more money than the woman. You know, right. I think in a in a long term in a Christian marriage, um, it's a uh, it's it. So this was in the context of a larger Bible study, um, and uh, I'd have to go back through the whole scripture and everything. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so suffice it to say that there's. I, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Class is over. <laughs> I stand behind what I said, but I just, I want to I want to put it in context. Yeah. I don't have time to do that right now. Yeah. But right. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about male headship and. Um, well, it's interesting because there's college students there, you know, and uh, they, they're they very um, – I think they're very – there are a lot of things that we have taken for granted for the last uh, maybe, I don't know, last 50, 50 to 75 years. And the college students are interesting because uh, their college students by nature of being college students are very open to ideas. Right. And um, when you go back in history and you find different ideas that don't exist today or aren't common today, uh, they're much more open to those things and to discussing them. So that's kind of what we were discussing. Yeah. All right. Any other questions, comments? Concerns? All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for preserving your uh, word, especially in Lutheran churches in America. And we pray again that we would. Uh, continue to to grow from uh, learning this history and from uh, discerning the lessons we can take away from it so that we can better preserve your word today in our place and time in history. And we pray that you would be with us uh, throughout this task. We pray that you would uh, let your gospel have free course in this place. We pray that you would allow uh, your word to change the hearts and, and minds of your faithful people, that we would ever conform ourselves to your word and not to the world. We pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.